Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you're listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Mandy Yin, who is the founder of Sambal Shiok, which is a laksa bar based in London. She's also the author of the cookbook Sambal Shiok, which is a collection of Malaysian-inspired recipes. In the following conversation, we chat about how Sambal Shiok came about and her journey of following her passion. It's a beautiful book and as a Singaporean reader, I just felt so proud reading it because all of the dishes that I grew up eating is just presented in such a beautiful way. That's that's really nice to hear because, um, you know, I, as you know, I wrote this book during the um, lockdowns of last year. And uh, so when I realized that we weren't going to be able to travel, I wasn't going to be able to get home for a long time, maybe for years. Um, so this book was really therapeutic for me to write because it gave me um, a lot of connection um, to home and, you know, memories and comfort. So uh, but at the same time, I, I always knew I wanted to make it really beautiful to look at. Mm. Um, I wanted it to be a coffee table book as well as a cooking resource um, because I, I wanted it to really bring Malaysia um, to the readers as well as giving, you know, comfort to other um, so Southeast Asians, Southeast Asians in the Western diaspora. Yeah. Did you feel like there was a gap in the market when you first decided to write this book? Oh yes, of course. I mean, you know, like, uh, uh, like I can only think of less than a handful of um, sort of Malaysian or Singaporean books that have been published by Western publishers. So of course, you know, we all have many. Um, uh, cookbooks uh, that have been published in the east but nothing here you know and and I just thought Mm. why why is that and so yeah I I, I'm doing my best to fly the flag Mm. yeah I mean even with uh Singaporean cookbooks I don't think there are many on the global market that are really written for say a white audience as well as people back home you know Mm -hmm. so I just feel that your work is really groundbreaking and it's you know so representative of the kind of food that we eat because it's not just about the greatest hits, not just about chicken rice or laksa. Was it something that you were very mindful of? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I um, I can only write about my experience, uh, my experiences, mm-hmm. my food memories of growing up and what, um, which dishes are important to me. So, um, yes, you know, I have um, sort of a few hawker centre favourites, uh, including, of course, my signature laksa, asam laksa. But, like, Mal- Malaysian food is just so, so wide, um, as you know, like Singaporean. Like, um, <clears throat> everyone, you know, so maybe they know, like, for example, rendang or satay, but there's so much more. Uh, and so, um, so, yes, I've, I've hung my hat on laksa. I, my mission is to make laksa as, as widespread, well-known as, like, Thai green curry or pad thai, you know. Um, but otherwise, so, yes, I, I certainly try to put other dishes that – I um, standard bearers in our cuisine mm-hmm. um, on the menu, just so that people come to understand the flavors. Um, like for example, my um, Malaysian fried chicken with peanut sauce. I mean, you're not going to find that in Malaysia. That is not a thing. <laughs> but at the same time, it's really um, grounded in our flavors. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we used to I used the rempa that usually marinates the satay um, for the uh, chicken, um, and then we coat it with a uh, spiced gram flour mix, you know, and that in, was inspired by Vade. I love Vade. Um, and so, you know, it's just um, twisting things a bit, 
like a, a bit like what our you know ancestors did when they first moved to Malaysia, right? Mm-hmm. And now I'm doing sort of the same because I'm, I, you know, I've lived in London for most of my life now, and it's based on what I like to eat and what um, sort of what I remember and uh, sort of what I think also is accessible to people, you yeah. know, um, here. It, I'm not saying I'm dumbing down the flavors, not at all. Um, but so, for example, on my menu is um, I I don't actually use a lot of Malay or Chinese words because I want people, um, the customers, potential customers, just to be able to look at the menu and conceptually quite easily understand what we're selling. And that's it. It's not that you know I I don't I'm not proud of what we have, but it's just like trying to bridge that gap. Mm, I realized that when I was flipping through your cookbook. I mean, I saw this recipe for mussels. Yes, masak nanas, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that that was so fantastic because I love mussels and that's definitely something that I would cook, you know. So I really love that playful approach. Um, but I was wondering if you felt any pressure to produce something that was like super authentic, you know, um, similar to what people would get back home in Malaysia and Singapore 100%. Because I mean, that is something that people always talk about when it comes to cooking or cookbooks from our region? Um, I I hate the word authentic. It's yeah. a troublesome, problematic word because it's so subjective to whoever it is who's using that word, okay? Mm-hmm. So I never de- I've never described my food as authentic. Um, so in the traditional sense, you know, you're not going to, like I said, you're not going to find many of the things in my book in Malaysia and mm-hmm. Singapore. Um, but... The, my food is authentic to me. It, it's genuine to my experiences. Um, so, and also like, um, you, you know, yes, if you want to find like really uh, traditional recipes, you can find that online. You know, you can find that in other books. Um, but from, from my point of view, like, yes, there are a few uh, more traditional recipes, like, for example, like Jack Wei Tiao or Wat Dan Ho in the book, because the, I love them, <laughs> like your Bakut Bay, for example. Um, but at the same time, it's, I'm, not, I'm not tied to the you know, traditional ways. For example, like, um, I, I don't use a pestle and mortar for pounding rempa. Like, sorry, I just don't have the time. I'm, I, you know, and at the restaurant, you know, we make like at least 40 kilos of laksa paste every week. It's just not possible. Mm. Otherwise, I would have to sell my laksa for like double the price because of the labor cost. So, you know, it's, um, um, yeah, so no, long, long, sorry, Sean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not tired at all yeah. to, being authentic in you know the traditional sense yeah when i read your cookbook i thought there was almost like a memoir of sorts where you kind of traced uh, your journey going from growing up in malaysia to moving abroad um i was just wondering how did you manage to learn i mean when i read your cookbook i was astounded because you know there are so many hawker classics or things that takes so long to master things like roti prata or roti chanai or even things like making the curry puffs. So what was that journey like for you learning how to cook heritage food? But um, actually those two things, uh, roti chanai and those spiral curry puffs, I learned to do in the lockdown. Oh. <laughs> you know? I was like, like, <laughs> you know, honestly, I've, I've spent years trying to crack um, roti chanai, honestly, years. You know, there's so many recipes for it, um, but I just couldn't get it. And um, of course, last year was highly traumatic uh, being a restauranter and you know had to close the restaurant and um, uh, and you know I, I decided to make the most 
use of that time um, of the restaurant's closure to try to make it a positive time, which is why I could, I really dedicated myself to all these recipe testing. Um, I, we ate, my husband and I, we ate roti chanai for a week, solid, <laughs> like lunch and dinner, lunch and dinner, because whilst I was trying to crack this, this, this uh, recipe, because, you know, so many recipes do um, call for, for example, egg or condensed milk. But I was like, I'm sure hawker, like, you know, the mama hawker uh, stores do not use expensive ingredients like eggs. There's no way. Um, so, you know, I was I was so happy when I figured out, like, okay, this is this is the, the, the trick to it. Um, and frankly, like, um, so, you know, like most of us, we, I use the internet. I, you know, research, like, possible recipes and then it's just like cooking right you just have to test <laughs> and so it, um put in that time um so now i'm, I'm really like actually the roti chanai recipe i um i say to people if you buy this book for one recipe that is the one for, <laughs> for uh, those of us who know it and likewise like curry puffs for example i didn't know how to make them before i didn't know even know how to pleat curry puffs 18 months ago oh, wow. um but again i spent you know that time like watching youtube videos like like trying uh, learning how to pleat like i'm, I'm actually actually very very um bad at dumpling and um, pleating so <laughs> you know pleating curry puffs was quite a challenge for me um but yeah, i did it and now like at the restaurant we serve um uh, curry puffs as well, not the spiral ones, mm -hmm. a bit the, the um, uh, uh, what you call it, the single short cross pastry mm -hmm. instead. But um, I'm really pleased that I've been able to pass on that knowledge to my team. And now people, you know, they come to us for the curry puffs. So it's, it's funny, like COVID, um, you know, yes, it was horrible, but there's lots of silver linings. Yeah, I love that. Like Singapore noodles was born during the pandemic as well. And I, I think you get to learn so much through, you know, this amount of time that you have that you would otherwise mm. never really learn how to do those things. Um, but when you were living in the UK with your with your family, were you actually starting to learn all these dishes from your mom growing up? Um, to be honest, not really. So when I was growing up, um, so I, I spent um, first 11 years of my life in um, KL. And my mom was um, a sort of housewife, so she used to cook as fantastic, um, you know, just normal, um, like two vegetables and a meat dish or, you know, the soups and things for dinner. Um, and so I let, grew up watching her cook. I wasn't necessarily cooking with her. Like she's like a lot of um, Asian moms, you know, like the kitchen is her thing. But I definitely remember like sitting on the, like a... Um, the floor, the high chair, just looking up. Um, and it's funny, I think I must have picked up a lot from just osmosis. Um, then I went uh, to university, studied law, like, um, <clears throat> and uh, didn't really cook that much um, after that when I started working as a lawyer. Like at uni, I was cooking simple stuff like stir fries and mm -hmm. curries and things. But um, when I was a, a practicing lawyer, it just, I just didn't have the time. And um, that's, honestly why I uh, burnt out um, after nearly a decade and you know I was good at it but I was just working crazy hours and at that time I realized look I can work this hard uh, for something that I really care about and really want to do. Um, I was a corporate lawyer so um, so many of my clients had set up their own businesses and I thought you know I just turned 30 why not me I try you know I'd rather try and fail than never try all and regret. Yeah. Um, so it was during that time when I took some uh, a few months off to 
to figure out what how I could change my life and the direction. Um, I spent a lot of time then with my mum, so going like cooking with her. And I said to her, "Look, mum, today you're going to teach me." Uh, I don't know, bakute, and I would just stand right next to her, and um, you know, like like most mums again, is like, all very aga aga, mm-hmm. and uh, she just cooks with from memory, and um, you know, sometimes she'll it'll come out the dish will come out slightly different because she's forgotten something, <laughs> you know. So so I just um, I stood next to her, and before she would um, put any seasoning in to whatever she's cooking, I stop her hand, physically stop her hand, <laughs> measure it. <laughs> <laughs> write it down and then she can continue um so it's um yeah it, th- that time also was very um it helped me to rebuild uh and reconnect with me and my soul and uh, made me realize how important like heritage and malaysia was and the cooking especially to me like mm. you know food has always been <clears throat> um uh, central to my life like even when I was at university or as a lawyer everyone used to ask me oh where should we go and eat or you know like for restaurant recommendations because I've always loved food so um and yeah so it's I guess it's life takes you funny directions but in the end you know you sort of yeah as you get older I think you learn to listen to yourself more mm-hmm. um and uh yeah that's that's how I came to yeah, it. Yeah, it's so ironic that you said that you were experiencing burnout. That's why you wanted to leave the industry and you started your own restaurant, which is even more stress and even more hours. Yeah, I mean, um, in, in a different way. I think, uh, yes, of course, it's I, I probably work the same amount of hours or, you know, work the same amount, but it, uh, I have control of my time mm. and I get to, um, uh, you know, schedule my days according to how I want to live for example you know like today this morning we're having um, this chat and then I'm going to go out for lunch with my parents hopefully and then in the afternoon I come back and do a bit more work so it's just it's things like that where you know it's um uh and I'm not being pulled in different directions and I my life literally is all about this business about my food Mm. um and it's very simple now yeah and how did your parents take to the news that you wanted to open (laughs) um well of course you know like um when I first changed they were very worried you know like uh and they said to me oh but but do you want to open a restaurant? Do you want to um, do a, write a cookbook? And I, I said at that time, I didn't know. All I, need, I knew was I had to try something. Um, and I started off in street food um, because in like 2012, 2013, the, the street food scene in London was really like exploding. Um, it, was, it was really massive at that time. And there were so many amazing, other amazing um, uh, sort of, food entrepreneurs in the street food scene at that time. And of course, you know, um, for Southeast Asia, street food is massive. So I thought, okay, let's try this. And also it required the least um, capital to start up. So I created um, the chicken satay burger at that time. It's pretty unique here. And um, because I did all my market research, I went to, you know, physical markets around London. And I was like, you know, analyzing the stalls and seeing what people were buying. And of course, um, you know, we're in the West, like the most popular store all the time was the burger store. Um, and that's why I thought, okay, why don't I make like a Malaysian style burger and chicken satay burger? And I, at that time, I also made um, beef rendang and put it in like, you know, brioche as well. Um, and so it's just, uh, again, suck it and see. And I learned from scratch. Um, how to run a food business. So 
how to run a, a simpler street food stall operation. Then over time, my customers will ask me, um, the street food customers will say, um, yeah, can you please open a restaurant? <laughs> because we want to come and eat your food when it's not raining, it's not cold, it's not snowing. Um, and can you also make laksa? Um, I never even considered doing laksa in, you know, in a street food stall setting because it's, it, it requires so much liquid, right? <laughs> so, um, and hence the laksa bar uh, pop-up restaurant was born. And so I did that for a couple of years of all around London. So, um, and it was incredibly successful. You know, we, we did a two week um, residency, for example, um, right at the start in um, a, a North London suburb in one of my friend's restaurants. Two weeks, uh, dinner time only at the beginning of January, which is traditionally very bad for restaurants. And I thought, oh gosh, no one's going to come. Um, but Literally, there were queues every night because we were no reservations. One night was snowing and there's queues. And I'm like, okay, this, uh, that's, uh, there's something with laksa. So, um, and that's, you know, I just followed that route and opened a restaurant in 2018. And again, like, you know, it's like crawl, walk, and then run. And running the laksa bar as a pop-up restaurant allowed me to learn how to, for example, scale up my recipes, how to manage a kitchen, how to uh, manage front of house. You know, I can I can do every single job in my restaurant, but that's no longer my job. So you know, and um, so it it hasn't happened overnight. It's like it's been a steady sort of yeah um, a journey, if you like. Mm. And how did you curate the menu at your restaurant? Did you think about what would people gravitate towards? I mean, the kind of food that they were most exposed to on their travels. Or did you try to sneak in some dishes that, you know, are not that popular in the West and, and people are a little bit unfamiliar with? Um, so, well, for example, I mean, laksa that, that seemed to really resonate with people. So I tried to build, for example, the, the snacks um, around the laksa with things that were, again, conceptually easy for people to understand. For example, fried chicken. Mm. You know, everyone, everyone loves fried chicken. Like, I, <laughs> if you say you don't like chicken, you're lying. Uh, so, um, and uh, again, like, with, you know, we're in London, so you can't have, it's very difficult to run, like, a, sa- a proper satay, like, charcoal grill outdoors. It's never going to happen. So, again, I've, I found a way of converting those flavours into something that I could sell in an indoor setting. Um, then another one of our very popular snacks is actually my take on gado gado salad. Like, that's not really that well known, but I wanted... Um, a vegan vehicle for our peanut sauce. Like you, you can't, you cannot ignore um, dietary requirements mm-hmm. in the UK. And um, you know, it's just uh, I, I like to be able to um, welcome and include everyone mm-hmm. um, in the restaurant. So again, like gado gado salad um, in uh, sort of Southeast Asia, it's quite. It can be quite a substantial dish. You know, you got eggs, you got tofu, potatoes. But at the restaurant, I stripped it down and made it a smaller portion because I wanted it to um, be a lighter take on it. Still really tasty, but uh, it's just sort of evolved over time. And now, like, for example, we've got the, um, the curry puffs, uh, fenugreek crackers as well. They're actually uh, Indian methi puri, which, um, you know, I I really love. I, to be honest, I've probably never had them. In, I don't remember having them in Malaysia, but I wanted for the restaurant a vegan version of a prawn cracker that we made in-house. You know, so it's just it's stuff like that that, 
um, people would understand and recognize um, as uh, uh, something, you know, um, that they might have had a version of somewhere else, but it's all unique to, to me and the restaurant. Yeah, and what is your approach to veganizing or making something that's so meat-heavy or seafood-heavy, like a laksa or like, a, say, a nasi lemak? You know, I just have a, a couple of very simple substitutions. For example, um, we have a vegan laksa. Mm -hmm. um, but so instead of the uh, shrimp paste and habi, we use uh, miso paste and uh, tomato puree. Like again, you know, very heavy in umami, but very simple substitutions. And same, like if you want to make a vegan sambal, you know, try using those two things or maybe just plain salt. It's, it's not that hard once you, you know, once you get over the fact that, okay, there's just, just no meat products at all or for example yes oyster sauce of course we use it all the time but now you can get like the mushroom sauce mm. the fry sauce it's everywhere right um so just very simple things or for example one of our uh, very popular desserts is a co set coconut pudding yeah which is my take on a panna cotta i love panna cotta um but instead of the gelatin we just use corn flour you know mm. like it's it's not hard uh once you start to um sort of think about it and uh, have a few basic substitutions, which I do talk about in the book as well. Yeah, I find that so interesting because if you go back to Singapore or Malaysia, you would never find a hawker who who would even think about veganizing his dishes. Um, so Because you don't need to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so many people are not vegetarian in Singapore or Malaysia. But I feel that, you know, it's so great that we are able to, you know, inject all these dishes with new twists and new perspectives um, and make it more relevant to a bigger group of people. So on a more personal front, I would love to ask you if you ever felt a sense of imposter syndrome. You know, I know that a lot of um, people, when they move out of a country uh, and they live abroad for, for a period of time, they do feel a sense of um a need to kind of prove themselves that they are as Malaysian or as Singaporean as people who didn't leave the country. Did you ever feel that way? Um, to be honest, not really. Mm. Um, I've, I've always been quite um, confident in sort of my, my uh, taste memories. Like, you know, I have, I'm, I'm so lucky to have had the first few years of my life in Malaysia and to remember, you know, like, family banquets or like so Chinese New Year and um, so uh, my Bobo's uh, house and stuff like that as well as you know like big seafood banquets where you go the, or the men would go and choose the fish and stuff like that and of course the hawker centers and um, coffee shops um, and of course like one of the main uh, memories for me is that primary school like you know like the massive uh, school canteen with so many different um, options like fresh freshly cooked food um, and I had laksa practically every day for lunch, you know, at school. So um, uh, all this really helped to formulate my identity, I think, when I came um, to uh, the UK. And I've just sort of hung on to that really very tightly. And uh, I've been lucky, of course, to have my um, immediate family, my parents and my brother here with me. So when we came over, um, at least I could still have my mother's cooking mm -hmm. and um, she still continued to um, you know, roll out like really great family meals mm. for us, uh, even though we couldn't go to the hawker stalls anymore. But, you know, she still carried on that tradition. And um, and in London, actually, again, so f I was lucky because we've always had not many, but a few like Malaysian um, restaurants mm. in London. So 
um, like most weekends, we continued the family tradition. We'd go off and, you know, like so many of Southeast Asians, we travel for miles. Like we're happy to travel an hour to go and try some restaurant. And um, so, you know, it, it continued, the food continued to play a very important part in my life. So in that sense, I'm not, um, I don't have, I don't feel any imposter syndrome. Um, and that's, that's just what I know. And again, you know, it's like, if people don't like my food, then, well, that's sort of their problem. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I, I like what I do and I, I, my main, um, MO is to make sure everything that I serve is tasty and th- that's about it really, you know? So, um, yeah. Yes. I love that confidence. Um, I would love to know about Iban cuisine in your, in your cookbook. So when I read that, I was like, what is this? I've never, ever heard of this before. So can you tell me what it is? And also, how, how were you exposed to it? Like, okay, I am in no way an expert in Iban mm-hmm. <laughs> cuisine or culture, just putting it out there, okay, making it very, very clear. Um, it, I was, again, very lucky to have, like, the last time I was in Malaysia, um, we uh, I was uh, very privileged to be able to go on this very, very special exclusive trip organized by a um, great friend of mine, Dr. Anna Sulan Massing, um, who, whose father uh, is uh, sort of Iban, and it's a, tr- a very um, a big tribe in Sarawak. Um, so she organized a trip for us there. And I, I'd never been to um, Borneo in full stop before this trip, which is very shameful as a Malaysian, you know, like, you know, why why do we not go there? It's like, it's right next door and we should know about it. Um, and so um, she took us to uh, upriver from Cebu to Kapit. It's like a three hour uh, longboat journey. Fascinating, and we actually got to spend time um, in an Iban uh, longhouse, you know, and with the people and have uh, ex- experience their hospitality. Um, and uh, so, you know, we were like, <laughs> we were plied with tuak, which is like coconut, um, uh, coconut spirit. Um, and it's just, you know, just one of those magical experiences that is uh, really um, informative. And so I just um, picked up a f- a few things like, for example, you know, they, they do live, uh, they're not, they don't really live in the city. It's the, you know, their back garden is the jungle. So they go uh, and forage and sort of the seasonings are a bit simpler than what I'm used to because, you know, it's just using like, for example, lemongrass or ginger galangal, um, down kasum, laksa leaves, chilies a bit. Um, it's so much, much simpler uh, than sort of, the food that like for example nonya cooking uh from uh, or like even some chinese cooking like pongte is quite strong flavors um so that you know i have uh, a couple of dishes in the book um dedicated to that trip like uh, my take on um manok panso which is a sort of very typical sarawakian dish but again it's it's my take on it it's not it's not the traditional recipe because i added stuff to it um, that I thought worked well. Um, and also Sarawak butter prawns. Like Anna, uh, Anna's family took us to this amazing um, Fujian uh, Chinese restaurant where like butter prawns are in mainland, like from KL. Like in my head, butter prawns are like, you know, the, the uh, with the egg floss yeah. and the curry leaves. Yeah, um, but here it, it, in uh, Sarawak, it was completely different. It's like with a sort of sweeter, um, 
sauce, like butter, super garlic sauce, which were delicious. So it, it was just fascinating to learn about uh, the differences, slight differences in the cuisine just across the water. Why was it so important to you to have these recipes in the book? Um, you know, I, I saw that you had the word diversity repeated quite a few times throughout the introduction. So why was that so important to you? To try to explain to people I mean, what Malaysian food is, you know, and I, I do think one reason why our food is not as well documented or known in the West is because it is quite complex in that, you know, you've got all the different um, cultures which feed into our food, as well as the geography. You've got Thailand and Indonesia. You've got the colon, you know, the uh, being colonized as well. Um, so I'm just trying to to show a very broad range of um, dishes and um, some ideas to explain like why our food is how it is. Like for example, one of my favorite recipes from from my mom is um uh, her Hainanese pork chop you know, with the sort of onion sauce and basically like, you know, like a, a British gravy, right? Um, so it's things like that, just to try to convey um, the history of various dishes. And it's not just about um, curries or the laksa or, uh, yeah, there's just so much more. Mm. And what do you think is the current perception of Malaysian cooking globally i mean in the world or in the uk um i think people are extremely receptive to um our flavors mm-hmm. and uh sort of strong punchy flavors and also like um uh, you know because especially now when we haven't been able to travel so much like definitely people want something different um and once i explain to people look if you're comfortable uh, making a stir fry or making a curry or a stew you can absolutely cook Malaysian food. It's not magic, um, you know. And also, once you have like the few basic pantry ingredients like um, coconut milk, chilies, lemongrass, uh, shrimp paste, of course, belacan and um, uh, tamarind paste. Yes, I, I admit, like belacan and tamarind paste are more unusual ingredients. But again, we live in we're so lucky to live in a connected, like you know, world where so much is available um, online. So you know, it's, it's becoming more possible. And again, like I try in the book to say, okay, if you can't find blachan, um, use heavy, for example, or maybe like fish sauce. Or, um, so it's, it's just, hopefully the book conveys like, okay, this is just a guide, but if you don't have one or two ingredients, it's okay. It's still going to taste good. Um, you know, you just have to play around with the seasonings. And um, like one, one thing I am, I tried really hard to do was make sure that every recipe had sufficient seasoning to make it taste decent you know because a lot of recipes uh, say oh season to taste but how is anyone who's never had the food know what it's supposed to taste like you know so um yeah it's just little things like that to make sure that okay you can cook this recipe as it is and it's going to taste good Mm. Uh, but you can you know put less chilies or you know make it vegan or it's it's completely um up to you what where you go with the recipes yeah so you know now in singapore actually a lot of people are not cooking heritage food because they find it so Mm. laborious um even if they live back home where they have all these all the different ingredients and herbs ready for them and it's so cheap they don't want to cook it because it's so much effort um so i was just wondering if you feel that malaysian cooking is accessible I, I think so. Yeah, of course it is. You know, like, honestly, like, half the half the meals I make every week are sort of Malaysian or, you know, it's sort of Asian inspired because 
like we have we have the basic ingredients already you know like the basic sauces that i don't know like um, soy sauce oyster sauce uh, bean paste you know um it's really not that hard once you once you um yeah commit yourself to just knowing a few basic things mm-hmm. um and it, i i do find it a shame if um you're only cooking like um you know i don't know pastas or convenient more convenient stuff like uh, so i I'm a very big believer in batch cooking. Mm. So, for example, like, um, I don't know, at the weekends, like, my husband and I will just cook, like, a lot of something and we might eat it a couple of times during the week, you know. It's, um, I'm, I'm very fine with leftovers. Like, of course, I love leftover rice because that means I can have fried rice the next day. Um, so things like that I definitely think is accessible. And um, certainly I think COVID has made people more interested in cooking, um, so here, like, I, I don't know how it's been like in Australia or um, Southeast Asia, but definitely, yeah, people want to experiment more and to come up with different things for their uh, you know, daily meals. In Singaporean cooking, it's a lot about frugality and, and not throwing things away, you know. So we would reuse things like prawn shells, prawn heads. We would fry them, make it into a stock. Um, pork fat, we would turn that into crispy lard crouton. Yeah, so I think that really underpins um, the kind of food that I, at least I have been eating when I was living in Singapore. What do you think is the overarching ethos of Malaysian cooking? Mm, for me, it's more about like incredibly tasty flavours made from very little sometimes. Uh, so uh, similar to what you're saying, uh, but um, there is a... a mm big reliance on for example like chilies and bean paste soy sauce like strong umami flavors belachan you know um which you can't you can't have our cuisine without those things so um again like having having these basic sources of uh, pantry items just helps you to to make our food one last question what is your dream or what are you working towards or what's on the horizon for you um well i um in the immediate future is uh having an actual baby a human baby (laughs) (laughs) which is going to be a brand new chapter in my life i uh slightly terrified (laughs) but um after that so just continue uh, with my mission in life which is to introduce as many people to Malaysian food as possible and you know getting them to understand it's really simple to cook um, and to get them to travel to the region and to further um, explore you know what it is and our our cuisine and our lifestyle uh, and to understand you know why it's so different you know like I keep saying to people in Malaysia you can eat anything, any time of day, at, you know, like literally anything. We eat like at least six times a day, you know, smaller portions, but it, like it's just completely different um, to uh, what we experience here. And to just spread that joy, um, yeah, I, ho- I hope to be able to uh, grow my restaurant and open more sites, certainly in London. Um, maybe I don't know. Maybe one day I'll write another cookbook. Yeah, I don't know. So um, yeah, it's it's all you know. Like like I said, it's all I I just um I I go along and I see what happens and I uh, grab opportunities as they arise or as they as they take my fancy. Um. So, but definitely you know Malaysian food and cooking um is 
is in my life plan forever. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you are such an inspiration because you are like such a go-getter and you are so confident in yourself and your own cooking. And also, I think you set the benchmark so high for anyone who wants to share about our food uh, to a global platform. I am so happy for the success of your book. And, you know, it's just a shining beacon for a lot of us. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, but likewise yourself, like, you know, what you, what you, everything that you cook is so amazing. And like, you know, what you're doing is really incredible because you're just, you're showing things that are like, I would love to cook. Like the other day you cook maruku. I love that stuff. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, um, I, I'm just, uh, I get so much joy from your platform. So thank you very much. And I guess like the main thing I want to say to people is like, don't be afraid you know, just do it like, like what you have done, you know, it's just like it and finding those pieces of joy in life is so important. Um, and to, to feed your soul. And if cooking, it does that, then, you know, <laughs> for goodness sake, like go with it, you know, in some way, it's better to have tried and figured out you don't like something. Um, it's not failure. It's really not. I, you know, you sometimes you have to go through an incredibly bad difficult time to understand okay that that's not how I need <laughs> that's not what I need to do and you take a different route you know so it, like one door closes another open so um I, I do I do think there is um merit in following your passion in a way but also like mm. understanding your limits and mm. uh, knowing when to cut your losses of course and to change direction like you know if it's not working yeah. <laughs> like don't stop doing it like, obviously like yeah. um life life is for living um and that's definitely uh something that i've i'm i'm really proud and pleased that i've managed to do with my life and to just take a, a different route um perhaps than what i thought i would when i was 18 years old it's just really listening to yourself and uh, believing in yourself as well totally agree thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for spending your morning with me and i am so eager to finish reading your whole cookbook <laughs> oh thank you very much well i hope you enjoy it and um keep on cooking that wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Mandy In of Sambal Shiok in London and author of the cookbook Sambal Shiok. Food media tends to focus on Singapore's best hits like chicken rice or laksa and fails to capture the diversity of Singaporean food. By documenting overlooked recipes, Singapore Noodles seeks to share about Singapore's rich food culture with you. If you'd like to support the work that we do, sign up to be a member on our website sgpnoodles.com. You'll gain access to all of the recipes on the site and participate in monthly cook-alongs. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.